Oh, good morning. I apologize for the dimness of the lights up here. We're having lighting issues. But the plus side is, you didn't come to see me, you came to see Jesus. And just like the Greeks said to Philip in John 12 when they came up to the feast, Sir, we would see Jesus. That's why we come. That's why we come and that's what we hope to do through his word this morning. So turn with me as we conclude our series in 2 Peter to 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read beginning in verse 8 to give some context because I will reference back to some of the verses that Ben preached last week. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Peter writes, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to be understood, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures." You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. You could be seated and let's pray. Father, we come this morning to see the magnified Lord Jesus, your beloved Son, your one and only. And we thank you for the privilege that we have to open your word, the illumination that you give through your spirit as you unfold it to us and bring revelation to otherwise darkened hearts and understanding. But you give us the light of life. And we come to receive it. We come to eat that bread from heaven which you've given to us this morning. So open it to us. Open our eyes to see and our ears to hear 
that we might behold wondrous things out of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I really want to encourage you all, if you don't already do this, uh, I started doing this as we were going through Second Peter, I think more, more intentionally than I have before. But I would really encourage you to study along as we, as we preach through books, especially shorter books, because it's relatively easy to do when you can read in one sitting. So I've read through this book several times as we've gone through it and studied each passage as we've preached through it and have found it to be exponentially rewarding uh, as, as I listen on Sunday. So I really encourage you to do that. It makes it go down deep into the soul and the spirit in a different way than if you just sit and hear it for the first time. <clears throat> so we see in this passage... And not only in this passage, but this, this passage, verses 14 through 18, that's the main text. I just read the previous verses for context, but that main text is a summary of the entire book. It's like he's starting back at the beginning and just circling back on everything that he said to conclude the letter. And so there are, there's one main purpose, both in this section and in the entire book, and there are three distinct themes, both in this section and in the whole book. The main purpose in this book is he's writing that they might know and remember, that they might know and remember, and if you look through the book and you mark those words or otherwise denote them, you'll see how many times the word knowledge or know or recall or remind or remember are repeated. Some of the most common words in the book. So that's his purpose, that they would know and that they would remember. And then it's centered around these three themes. There are three main things, distinct themes that he wants them to know and remember. The first and the one of most preeminence is the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The knowledge of Jesus Christ. He starts the letter that way and he ends the letter that way. The knowledge is a twofold knowledge. It's a knowledge of his person and a knowledge of his coming. Those two things he talks about over and over. The second theme is the necessity of holiness and fruitfulness. And the third thing is the allure of false teaching and false teachers. He, he wants his readers to know what to look out for and what to guard themselves against. So hold those three things in mind and we're going to go through each one of those themes I'm going to start in this passage that we have before us and then go back through the book and see how the themes exist there as well. So number one, the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The knowledge of his person and the knowledge of his coming. You'll see that the first word in our text is the word therefore. And whenever we see the word therefore, we always ask, what is the therefore therefore? And so, when we ask that question, we find that he's referencing back to verses 8 through 13, which is why I read those for context. And he gives in those verses two twin motivations for what he's about to say, for the command that he's about to give. He's saying, look back here at these things that he's given for motivation. And we have in that text a negative motivation and a positive motivation. 
The negative motivation is in verse 11. It says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. So the dissolution of the old heavens and the old earth. That's a motivation. It's a lesser motivation. It's mentioned only once, and he doesn't issue a command after that one, but he gives a rhetorical question. He says, what sort of people ought you to be? So typically a positive motivation is always more compelling than a negative motivation. Inspiration and stirring drives a person more than simply don't do that because of that. Both are necessary. Don't get me wrong. There's both warning and wooing perpetually throughout the scriptures. But I think the focus is really on the positive motivation because he mentions it twice in verse 13 and in verse 14 after the therefore. In verse 13 he says, according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then in verse 14 he says, since you are waiting for these. So he repeats that. So that's the second motivation, the positive one, the inauguration of the new heavens and the new earth. It's the greater motivation. It's mentioned twice, and it is followed by an imperative command. But listen to this. What's the name given to the time when all this will happen throughout the book, but particularly here in verses 10 and verses 12? It calls it the day of the Lord and the day of God. In 2 Peter 1 He describes it as when the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Back in 1 Peter, he calls it two times the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, it says when his glory is revealed. That's how he describes it, when the glory of Jesus Christ is revealed. Now think think about the topics that are frequently discussed when we talk about the end times. Okay, we talk about events leading up to the end times. We talk about events during the end times. We talk about the state of the world surrounding the end times. Talk about sinfulness and the the rampantness of evil. But the real focal point, it's amazing how it's so easy for us to miss the main theme of the end times. The focal point of the end times of that great day is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The revelation of him, the man. I like Doug Wilson has a commentary. I haven't read it yet. He has a commentary on the book of Revelation and the title of the commentary is When the Man Comes Around. He is the man. The reality of the living Jesus Christ, that's the focus of the end times, and it's intended to be the focus of every human heart. So we know that he's going to return to judge the world in righteousness. We know that all the the old is going to be dissolved. We know that he's going to establish and set up his everlasting kingdom in all of its fullness. He's going to make the new heavens and the new earth, But, but the real focus is the full revelation of the Son of God to all mankind, when every eye sees him, he's the focal point uh, in the judgment of the wicked. He's the dominant figure in the salvation of the righteous. And he's the preeminent fixture in the new heavens and the new earth. You know, we talk about the judgment like the judgment's really about the wicked. It's not about the wicked primarily. It's about the revelation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the contrast between the wicked. 
So what we'll really be marveling at is not what's happening to the wicked and how evil they are, but how glorious and majestic Jesus Christ is in the face of that wickedness. So he's the, he's the preeminent fixture. When we think about the new heavens and the new earth, it's really all about him. It's a glorious new heavens and a new earth because he's there. So Peter doesn't intend principally to fix the hearts and minds of his readers on the new heavens and the new earth as such, as just an isolated thing in and of themselves, but on their creator, on the creator of the new heavens and the new earth. Remember what it says in Hebrews 3 that David preached this recently. It says, for Jesus has been counted more worthy has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So he is more glorious than the new heavens and the new earth because he is the creator of the new heavens and the new earth. It's, it's just in the same way. Imagine, imagine a bride on her wedding day, and she's just enamored with all the beautiful decor, all the careful coordination of the clothing, all the flawlessly executed order of events. This is pretty typical, actually. It's pretty typical for people who live together or who have otherwise been together before they're married. It's all about the event. But imagine that, but she misses the groom. She's so consumed with all these other beautiful things, but she misses the groom. But that's why she's there, is for the groom. Or you could reverse it, and it would be the same way. If the, if the groom is consumed with all these things besides the bride. So the groom is the supreme object of her joy and happiness on that day, and everything else is just a bonus. That's the way it ought to be with Christ's church. So let's look to see this theme in earlier parts of the epistle. Like I said, he begins it this way. In 2 Peter 1, he says in verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, this is the only New Testament letter that begins this way. There are others that begin by saying grace and peace be multiplied to you or grace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus. But this is the only one that uses that word, that phrase, the knowledge of God. And Jesus our Lord. So we, the, que- the text answers the question, how are grace and peace multiplied to you? Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. It says, continuing on in verse 3, that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So it answers the question, and we ask the question, by what means has he granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness? Through the knowledge of him. By what means has he granted to us his very great and precious promises? Through the knowledge of him, of Jesus Christ. I'm going to turn back to the the marriage example. Okay, you don't really know your spouse until you've come together. You can know someone at a somewhat 
superficial level, but until you have come together, you don't really know them, which is why the Bible uses the word know repeatedly, especially in the Old Testament, when it references sex. You said, did he just say sex from the pulpit? I did. You're welcome for any ensuing conversations on the way home. Intimacy, it signifies that this kind of knowledge, it's, it signifies intimacy. Intimacy. It's not just the mere possession of information. It's a deep apprehension of something, of someone. It's a physical, emotional, spiritual intimacy in marriage. A deep and profound connection. It's a one flesh union. The Bible says it's a picture of Christ and the church that marriages and that union, that one flesh union in particular, it says in Ephesians 5, no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. And then he quotes from Genesis, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. But listen to this, this mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the picture is intended to demonstrate the union and the intimacy and the knowledge of Christ that we have of him as his church and that he has of us. If you look at the scriptural use of the word know, which we should, A.W. Pink said, if we understand what God intends by using a particular word, we must not turn to Webster's Dictionary, but see how it's used throughout the scriptures. He says this about knowledge in the scriptures. No occurs in the Old Testament frequently. When that term is used in connection with God, it often signifies to regard with favor, denoting not mere cognition, but an affection for the object in view. I know thee by name. Exodus thirty three seventeen, Ye have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. Deuteronomy 9. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. Jeremiah 1. They have made princes, and I knew it not. Hosea 8. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Amos 3. In these passages, knew signifies either loved or appointed. In like manner, the word know is frequently used in the New Testament in the same sense as the Old Testament. Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Matthew 7. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. John 10. If any man love God, the same is known of him. 1 Corinthians 8. And the Lord knows those who are his. 2 Timothy 2. Or we could look to other examples, like Paul says in Philippians 3, that I may know him, this is his principal aim and goal, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. There's a connection between the two. The knowing of him and experiencing the power of his resurrection. Or in Ephesians 4, it says that he gave some as apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So it's knowledge, it's knowledge of a person, of the person, of the man, intimate acquaintance with him 
not just cognition. And everything has to flow out of this. So why, why do we need the continual reminders? It seems like a simple thing that we would remember this. You know, he, he's the, the pinnacle and the foundation of our salvation. Why do we need to be reminded, oh, the knowledge of Christ and the knowledge of God is foundational and I must remember it and not forget? Well, it's because our own fallen flesh, not to mention the world and the devil, are actively working against us, seeking to suppress the knowledge of him. We have an inward enemy that's fighting to be independent from him. So we need continual reminders and to continually cultivate the knowledge of Christ. So he moves from there to the, the second theme of the book and of this passage, which is the necessity of holiness and fruitfulness. And, and holiness and fruitfulness necessarily flow out of the knowledge of Christ and the knowledge of his coming. Otherwise, it's not genuine and it's not real. It's fake and carnal and man-made. But it must flow out of the knowledge of him. And so if we look as it goes on, Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. So he repeats, like we said, he repeats that motivation again. Since you're waiting for these... That's the motivation, and then comes the command, the imperative. Be diligent. Be diligent. Remember it from the reading of the law. Similar concept. It's a theme throughout the whole Bible. Be diligent. It's the only imperative that's repeated in the book. It's in chapter 1, and it's coupled together in the same section with make every effort. Dave preached on this and emphasized that when he went through that section, the necessity to labor diligently. And then it's, but what are we laboring diligently for? It says to be found. That word is the, is the same word used in verse 10. And there it's translated as exposed. Be diligent to be exposed. By who? By him. By him. Let us be found and exposed by him now that he might deal with what he finds rather than being found and exposed by him then lest we be ashamed on that great day. And he will deal with it. He will deal with it. If we labor to be found and exposed by him now, he will be faithful to deal with the things that he finds. And the goal is to be found how? without spot or blemish. He calls earlier, Peter calls in chapter 2, he calls the false teachers blots and blemishes. So they are, they don't just have blots and blemishes, they are blots and blemishes, but we're to be found not even with spot or blemish. 
And earlier in 1 Peter 1, it says that we are ransomed by the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish and spot. So we're to become like the lamb who ransomed us. He is without blemish and spot, and we labor diligently to be found by him without blemish or spot. And he enables the laboring. He blesses it. And then it says, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. That's an interesting phrase. How is it salvation? How is the patience of our Lord's salvation? Well, it could be salvation for those who have not yet repented. He talked about that earlier, that the Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, but he's patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Certainly that could be included in the sense in which he means it here, but in the context, it really indicates that it's talking about salvation for those who are already in Christ. Now, how can you be saved if you're already in Christ? Well, he saves us from the power of sin. As we come to him and we, and we labor in the knowledge of him and we allow him to find and expose what he sees within, then he, he roots it out. And he's saving us from the power and bondage of our sin as we bring it to him. And repent. So we count the patience of our Lord as salvation. It's preparation. He's giving us more time. Every day that I'm here is more time for me to prepare diligently to meet him face to face. It's not just the sitting and waiting and just kind of gritting through until he comes. Every day is a diligent labor so that when he comes, I'm not found ashamed at his coming. But that, like it says in 1 Peter, that the trial of my faith might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. A purified faith without spot or blemish. And so he deals with this also in the epistle at large, the section that Dave preached in 2 Peter 1 says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these things, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what are the expected results here of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? effectiveness and fruitfulness. The kind of knowledge that Peter talks about will necessarily bear fruit in godly character. See the connection here. He doesn't start with godly character. He starts with the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he doesn't end with the knowledge. So he doesn't start with godly character, but he doesn't end with the knowledge. They're both required. Knowledge of Christ must lead to Christ-like conduct. Said earlier in verse 4 that you've escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust by the knowledge of Him. 
So you make every effort, we make every effort to supplement our faith with the seven things that he lists there. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. These things will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. He's giving a list of reasons why these things are so necessary. Whoever lacks them is so nearsighted he's blind. Whoever lacks them has forgotten that he's been cleansed from his former sins. The practice of them is how we confirm our calling and election. If we practice them, we'll never fail. And if we practice them, there will be richly provided for us an entrance into his eternal kingdom. Important, I'd say. Then he concludes that section in verses 12 through 15 saying, Therefore, now he's all, all onto the reminding, the reminding, the reminding. I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that put, the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I'll make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Even those who know and are established need to recall and be reminded. And recall how frequently Peter's description of false teachers includes their sensuality and their licentiousness. So it's some nece- there's a connection there. It's so necessary for us who have the knowledge of Christ to grow in these virtues and in godliness and then he highlights the fact that the false teachers are full of sensuality and licentiousness, the very opposite of virtue and godliness. So that gets us to number three, the third theme, the allure of false teaching and false teachers. So the avoidance of false teaching and false teachers is achieved through the practice of those first two themes, through the knowledge of Jesus Christ and the cultivation of that, and through diligent laboring to be found without spot or blemish and to put on all those virtues that he lists. Go back to our main passage. Verse 16b says, There are some things in them, that's in Paul's writings, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So they're ignorant and unstable, these false teachers. They twist the scriptures even to their own destruction. And then it calls them lawless people. Lawless people. Like Ben talked about in the reading of the law, the necessity of God's law and acknowledging the goodness, the righteousness, and the holiness of it. But they don't do that. They hate and despise the law of God and do not practice it because it confronts and it attacks their lusts. Those who walk in darkness don't come to the light. They hate the light and they don't come to it for fear that their deeds will be exposed. So they hate God's law. Listen to me. Beware of anyone who speaks deridingly of God's law. Even to suggest, there are, there are many, many 
otherwise seemingly faithful teachers. And I'm not saying that they're even false teachers. This is a level before that. And they speak about the law of God as though, well, that was that thing back then. And, you know, it was kind of harsh back then. Like they were slaughtering entire nations. You know, if there was a rebellious child, they would bring him before the elders of the city and stone him. And that was a little wacky. Anybody who talks about the law of God like that does not understand him and does not really know him in a right way. We should love the law of God. If false teachers hate it and they're lawless, then we should love it and cherish it. A lot of times people say, think that the Pharisees' error was that they loved the law too much. But that's not true. They hated the law. They made up their own laws and they twisted the law so that they could look like they were obeying it while not really doing so. It's good. The law is good. And it does, it serves the purpose to expose our sin. But then it also demonstrates to us how to practice righteousness. So you have people, teachers, who say, you know, they really emphasize the relational aspect of Christianity. They could even emphasize the knowledge of Christ, but then they leave off the necessity of practicing virtue and obedience to God's moral law. It's not good. Beware of such people. And though it may not be a sin of the same degree as the false teachers who are just totally licentious and lawless, it's a sin of the same order. It's the same type of sin. It just hasn't progressed as far. But if you go all the way down that path, then you'll get to total antinomianism, total lawlessness, where we're just free, like Ben was talking about a few weeks ago in the description of false teachers. We're, we're free in Christ to just sin as much as we want. That's the end of the road of those who speak negatively about God's law. So they're lawless people. And, and the pattern of these false teachers is they suppress the truth, they indulge licentiousness, and then they formulate teachings to accommodate themselves and their practices. So that, but the temptation for us is is after the same manner to forget the truth. They suppress it. They actively suppress the truth. But we can forget it, and we can indulge licentiousness, and we can begin to slowly formulate teachings to accommodate our own sensuality. So he's telling them here, you know what they do. You know the temptation for you. Therefore, take care. That's the command that he gives. Take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. And obviously this theme of being wary and aware of false teaching and the false teachers is replete throughout the rest of the, the book. In 2 Peter 2, verse 12, it says, These like irrational animals, or the King James says, natural brute beasts... Creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about manners of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Now, the word ignorant there 
It's the only time in the book that that root word for knowledge is used, but, but it's the opposite. You see what I mean? Ignorance and knowledge. So the rest of the book, he's talking about knowledge, and here he's saying that the false teachers are ignorant. They lack knowledge. They reject the knowledge of the truth, but mostly, mostly they reject the Lord Jesus. That's what they're rejecting at first. Every false teacher is rejecting Jesus Christ. And every unbeliever is rejecting Jesus Christ in the same way, like it talks about in Romans 1. Though they knew God, they didn't acknowledge him as God. And that's why they're called natural brute beasts, these false teachers or irrational animals. You cannot reject Christ and retain other creational truth. He is the truth, and the truth is in him. And if you reject him, then you'll be given over to total falsehood, to a total, as Romans 1 puts it, a reprobate mind, which is one that doesn't even morally function. It's, it literally means being morally retarded. That's how these false teachers operate. They reject the knowledge of Christ, the very thing that is the foundation of our faith and out of which everything good and right flows, the knowledge of Christ. That's what they reject supremely and principally. What does he say of these people at last? We read it. Depart from me, for I never knew you. Then it says, further on in chapter 2, verse 20, if they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. How does someone escape the defilements of the world? Through the knowledge of of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 3, it says, This is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days of scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So he tells us the purpose, plainly here, why he's... I'm writing you to stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder. You know these things, now continue to know them, grow in the knowledge of them, and remember them. I'm reminding you. Remember these things because you know you will be attacked by scoffers in the last days. So, lastly, brings us to verse 18 where he gives the final command. And the final command, as we said, was he circles back. Now he's at the beginning of the book again. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. So he gives that, that contrast there at the beginning of the verse. But... The opposite of being carried away with the error of lawless people and losing your stability is growing in grace 
and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no neutrality. There's, there's no neutrality. You're either, you're either being carried away by the error of lawless people and losing your stability, or you're growing in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the two options. This isn't a charge to simply acquire more information about Jesus. Which it's possible to do, to just go and study. Just study your brains out and memorize large portions of Scripture and completely miss Christ. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but they are they which testify of me. So it's not just a charge to acquire more information, but it's a charge to grow in conduct and character through deeper intimacy with the Son of God. Or as Paul puts it, to be changed from one degree of glory to the next as you behold him with unveiled face. We become more like him as our heart, soul, and mind are consumed with him. I'm going to go back to the marriage example, okay? You tell someone that you're very close with your spouse. Oh, we're so, we're so close. But you don't like similar things. You don't eat similar things. You don't talk in similar ways. You don't enjoy similar pastimes. You don't think similar thoughts. You don't have similar beliefs. But you're so close. Now, that would be absurd. No one would believe you that you're really close, because if you're really, truly close, then you become like one another. And particularly, the wife becomes like the husband in following his lead. I've seen this. I've seen this so much in my own marriage, and sometimes in very positive ways and sometimes in very negative ways. When I see Heather becoming more like me, a lot of times I'm like, oh, I, I need to... Like, you see something in somebody else, and it can be pretty ugly and then you realize, oh, I'm like that, and I just never noticed it before. <laughs> but it's just a natural fact. When you have union and oneness with someone, you become like one another. For good or for bad. Except with Christ, it's always for good. And that's the, that it's the, it's the picture. He intends it to be that way with him and his church. That's why it says in 1 John, by this we know that we've come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Because it's silly nonsense to say, I know Jesus Christ, but I'm nothing like him. I don't obey his commandments. I don't like what he says. It's lies. So just some questions to ponder. Some piercing questions, maybe painful questions. Is the reality of the Son of God continually impressed upon you? A Christ consciousness. 
Isn't it the easiest thing to neglect? We can go about even good and godly daily habits in practicing the reading of Scripture, the study of Scripture and prayer, witnessing even, teaching our children, instructing them in the way they should go, singing, worship, faithfulness at work, telling, being a, a truth teller, being an honorable person of integrity, being generous, all these things. You can practice the virtues and neglect the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you consider and meditate on him as you study his word? Because like we said, it's possible to open the word and completely miss Christ. I'm going to botch this quote because I didn't write it down, but uh, read an article that we the elders circulated this week, and it, it said that Calvin said that that Christ, uh, the the gospel is the set of clothes which Christ wears, and so the author of the article said we must uh, we must preach the clothes, but not only the clothes. We can't miss Christ for the clothes. So in the same fashion, we can't just come to the scriptures and only study facts and information and miss Christ to whom they point. Is there an inward overflow within you? Is he to you not merely, this is a, this is a, a big one, an easy one to fall into. Is he to you not merely a benevolent divine being, but a close familiar friend? Like, do you have the conscious awareness of his presence as you're doing your daily tasks? That's what he intends for us. This is the supreme privilege of the knowledge of him, escaping the corruption of the world through lust, being made partakers of the divine nature, and walking in his exceeding great and precious promises. It's through this continual knowledge and awareness of his presence, like, that's the, one of the purposes of the giving of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to go, but I'm going to send another who will be with you and in you. And he's going to bear witness to me continually to you, stirring you up. Well, maybe you, maybe you have sorrowful or painful answers to those questions. The, the way to remedy those deficiencies, any deficiency in the knowledge of Christ and intimacy with him or the knowledge of the, any of these other things that Peter's talking about in this letter is the remedy is beginning with and continuing in careful and prayerful study of God's word. Careful and prayerful. Not just glancing through but not just reading, closing it, and going. Prayer, devoted and dedicated prayer time as you study and he unfolds to you in the scriptures all the things concerning himself. Peter takes great pains in this letter to establish the veracity of the word of God and the predictions of the prophets about Christ. Like he says in chapter one, you would do well to pay attention to these things as to a lamp shining in a dark place. So 
we must take great pains to eat that bread of life daily and be nourished by it. And I'll close with this. There can be familiarity with the scriptures and not the Son of God, but there cannot be familiarity with the Son of God and not the scriptures. Let me say that again. You can be familiar with the scriptures and not the Son of God, but you cannot be familiar with the Son of God and not the scriptures. This word is the word by which we live, not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God because it leads us to the living Christ, and it's through this that we behold his glory, that we grow in grace and in the knowledge of him in that deep and intimate acquaintance and union which is blood-bought and purchased for and given to us. So let's do that. Let's put it into practice and do what Peter charges his readers to do here. Let's pray. Father, we confess such a quickness to forget the supreme and important things and especially how neglectful we are to turn our eyes towards the Son of God and to look on you and your glory and your majesty through the scriptures. You know, Lord, how self-sufficient we can be. Maybe we commit some sin and it cuts us off from fellowship with you and instead of repenting, we just assume that's how it is. That's just, this is just how it's going to be. While Lord, teach us, teach us to turn to you and flee to you quickly if we should break faith and break fellowship with you. And teach us to be diligent as Peter charges us to grow in grace and the knowledge of you. To labor and to be diligent to put on godliness and to beware of being carried away with any kind of false teaching, anything that would lead us away from you, Lord Jesus, and the knowledge of you. May we be diligent seekers and really walk in that intimacy with you that you intend for us to have. In Jesus' name, amen.